But the wise men, I've already told you, they came from the Parthian Empire, far less roads, not as well developed. So really this journey is a little bit difficult in a, an extremely less way. I can tell you that every time I go and drive to my mom's in central New York, and we go up 81 eventually and get up through Wilkes-Barre and Scranton and Binghamton, it is... You could you could have your eyes closed and you know when you're leaving Pennsylvania and going into New York. The roads smooth out instantly. <laughs> and they do the opposite when we come back home. So they're not driving on smooth roads. This is a really uncomfortable journey. And I'm kind of belaboring this because I want you to get thinking about this. What was so important that they made this journey? Why did they do it? Have you ever thought on that? Well, I think I can probably tell you a little bit of what people think. And I did ask some people this this last week. It was very interesting, their answers, all very good answers. The answer, obviously, is a star appeared. They knew the scripture. They knew the prophecies that triggered movement from them. But I guess I would ask you, if that's what you're thinking, why didn't they just rejoice from the Parthian Empire? Why did they travel 2,000 miles is it because they're thrill-seeking adventurous? They just want to explore the world? I doubt it. I'm pretty sure, although we don't know. They left, I'm assuming, a direct route back home. Why would they make that difficult, lengthy journey? I want you to think of the expense for a moment. Think of the danger. I don't know how many wise men there were, but there's a lot of people with them. And they went to this little insignificant area of the world called Judea. Most people never would have heard about it. You know why they went? So simple that most of us overlook it. Matthew answers it. Look at chapter 2. Look at verse 2. He's very explicit with the reason. Where he is, where is he rather, verse 2, who has been born king of the Jews... For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They made that journey just to sit and fall at the feet of the Christ child and worship. Well, that immediately got me thinking because I honestly, and I've been preaching the wise men for a long time. I've preached them at this church many times, actually. I've reflected on this story from a very little boy. My father would read this story Christmas morning oftentimes. So I'm very familiar with it, but maybe too familiar because I never really got that before. They traveled all that way just to fall at the feet of the Son of God in worship. That got me thinking about my own worship and honestly got me thinking about your worship. It actually gave me a bit of a new perspective for the wise men. It's going to get a little bit more interesting as we think on this because, well, I'd like to explain to you a little bit about what the word worship means. It's all through the Bible. We probably should be thoroughly familiar with it. It's just everywhere in the Bible, Old, Old Testament and New. So what does it mean? If I were to ask you privately, could you tell me, could you explain to me what worship means? I mean, listen, we talk about worship all the time. We do a call to worship where one of us gets up and we invite you to contemplate and reflect on, on Christ through the scripture. So you hear the word worship all the time. Well, forget me asking you. What if somebody that's not even a Christian asked you, can you explain 
what this thing called worship is? You Christians do this all the time. What would you say? How would you answer that? It's a very interesting word. It has a lot of meaning. I guess the, if I'm going to explain it the best I know how to, I'm going to take you back to the previous series that we just finished in Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to connect it to what Solomon said at the very end of the book. This is my final message in that book just a few weeks ago, and Solomon says, he explains what the whole duty of man is. Do you remember what I explained about that phrase if you were here? All that means is Solomon saying, here's what life is all about. Here's everything that life is all about, and he gives the answer, fear God and keep his commandments, Ecclesiastes 12 Verse 13, if you want to know what life is all about, that's what Solomon would answer you. That's what he would tell you. To fear God. For the Christian, for us, for I'm, I'm hoping that's for everybody in here. I'm not assuming that. I'm just hoping that. But for the Christian, that doesn't mean shaking and scared out of your mind with God. Trembling from fear before him. Christian, that's never what the word or what the phrase to fear God means for us. It's a word that means to trust, to love, to center your life on God, to worship him, that he is the premier person, premier creature. He's not a creature, right? The creator in your life, we're the creature, so it's the premier being, and your entire life revolves around him. That's what it means to fear him. I'm going to go a little bit deeper. It means to tremble because every part of your soul is at home. It's experiencing what it's designed for. Now, interestingly, some of you may have experienced this. When you were very young and you were dating that person and you were holding that person's hand for the very first time, a lot of people report their body started to tremble. It was uncontrollable. You may have experienced that. Well, you're kind of getting at it now with worship. It means to have such an anticipation, such an excitement in your heart that the object of which you're worshiping becomes everything for you. It's like you wouldn't imagine being anywhere else. It's more like the best moment of the best day of your entire life and you're going to be able to have this for eternity. It's not because harp playing cherubs are flying around you in heaven and a heavenly choir is chanting Gregorian style. To me, that would be really not very exciting. That's not what heaven's going to be like. The greatest desire you can have is to be with your God. That's, listen, if you want to know what desire levels can be on the range of the desire scale, I mean, you may really desire your wife or your husband or your children. You may desire to go to that game to get a better job. But listen, the biggest desire that your soul, my soul is capable of, is to absolutely be enraptured with God. There is not possible a bigger desire than that. It's what we're created for. And the greatest confidence that you can possess is in his love. And the strength and the favor that he has for you can absolutely bring a delightful smile to your face. It's because God's face beams with love for you. Have you ever thought of God's face beaming over you? 
See, worship is spiritual warmth. It's the final turn of the Rubik's Cube when everything falls into place. Your soul just aligns the way that it was straight from the package before sin messed you up. It is the whole heart. It's your mind, your feelings, and your will. That's what the heart means. All together loving the one who most deserves it. And finding the greatest satisfaction in simply being in a relationship with God. But listen, worship is not just feelings oriented. Some of us have to remember that there is passion. There is feelings. There are feelings in worship. Some of us are so vulcanized that we sort of approach God purely rationally. That's not whole creature worship. It's important. You want to be driven by truth. You don't want to be driven by emotions. Listen, I know people, actually very good friends of mine, who will leave our church and go to another church if their worship is better, if it arouses their feelings better. I don't know about you, but during worship, during this worship service that we just experienced, the singing portion, I could feel my heart moving. Something about Jenna's singing. I I just think that God just smiles on her when she sings. I think he does on all worship leaders who truly are singing for the glory of God. But there's something, Jenna, where are you? I don't even know where you are. But there's something about you when you sing. God, the Father, I could just see him smiling. And I could feel my heart moving. I could feel my heart from the fatherliness part of it with my own daughter feeling it move. I mean, God feels. He thinks truth ought to drive us, but it can't just be truth. Emotions ought to be there, but it can't just be emotions. And what we're really getting at is why did these wise men travel 2,000 miles? Because they wanted to worship the Christ child. I mean, that drove them. On this journey, it had to take at least six to eight months. Well, I'm kind of describing what worship is. I haven't really defined it for you, so I'm going to do that for you really quickly. The word worship means to kiss. Did you know that? It's actually taken from a Hebrew word for a dog that is licking the hand of its master. My son Aaron has a Belgian Malinois that is known in its breed for just fixating on its primary owner. And you know what? When Aaron's not there and it's just me, Asher, the dog's name, Asher is all over me. He wants me to throw the ball left and right. As soon as Aaron comes into the house, it's like I blink out of existence in his life. I mean, it's amazing. He can't get enough. Aaron will, he will just stare at Aaron. He'll just sit there in front of him and stare at Aaron. And if Aaron moves his head, Asher moves his head. And if Aaron stands up, Asher gets ready to go. I mean, he's so fixated on it. Well, that's really what it means to worship. It's an all-consuming adoration. As in, no one has my attention, nobody has my affection more strongly than the one of whom I am worshiping. Now, is it trickling into you now what is filling the hearts of the wise men? They are fearing God. They are anticipating him. They are adoring him. They are fixed on him. They want, they want to worship the Christ child more than they want to stay comfortable in Parthia. 
See, adoration is, I believe, the very best way to understand what it means to worship or fear God. And it's all the better when that adoration results, listen, when it produces a life of devotion and obedience, which is the design end of worship. So worship that you leave here after a service and you fell so close to God, you had a bad week and all of a sudden things settled into your soul and you could feel it and you could believe the words that you were singing and then you leave here and it doesn't make a difference in your life. You weren't worshiping. That's not worship. Those were feelings they might have been powerful but if worship is to be worship it must result in a changed life see worship involves the glad voluntary lowering of yourself into a position of God's servant you know what we do when we worship well, I'm going to try to explain it this way. This is maybe one of the better ways that I can explain it. Hopefully it will penetrate and you can understand. But when I come home, I have to really be careful. In fact, I counsel this all the time to people. Pick a halfway spot. Even if you're 10 minutes from home, pick a halfway spot. And start deliberately examining your heart and the motivations your expectations, your desires, your dreams. I have discovered in my life, the more stressful my day was, the greater my expectation, which I justify to be a demand that my home be a place of peace and everybody to serve me is in my heart. That's greater in my heart when I've had a stressful day. And when I raise that garage and I go to park in there, if I haven't done battle with my own heart, then I'm going to lose that war. And I will be irritable, I will be grumpy, and I will be demanding. You see, worship must voluntarily mean you get off the throne. You're not on the throne. There's only one being that's on that throne that belongs there. We like it. Trust me, that throne, can I say this? Probably not. But I think my rear end had put dents into it. I love that throne. I sit on it all the time. And it's always disaster. And God just gently, sometimes a little firmly, says, what are you doing? You're not born to rule. You're born to serve. you got to get off the throne. You see, worship means that I am now voluntarily stepping down off that throne, walking down the steps, back down to the place before it where I am on my face, figuratively, symbolically, literally, it's where I belong. The role of the servant serving the one who is the most high God. That's worship. And worship that is right, worship that is true, worship that is passionate should result in a life of greater devotion where I want nothing more than to serve my God. See, to worship Christ then is to adore him, to be utterly convinced of his greatness and to respond with your devotion. Now, all of that, I know that you're going to snicker a little bit. All of that was introduction. It was just setting the stage. Because now we're going to look at the wise men. Let's go back into verse 11. You ready? And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. 
Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, with all of that introduction, I hope that you can feel what's going on in them. I hope you can feel their joy. I hope you can see now, this is the entire ultimate end goal of that journey. It's not penultimate. Penultimate means next to the top. This is the top. We're looking at the grand motivation for why they're traveling 2,000 miles all the way from Parthia to fall down and worship this Christ child. They fall down. They adore him. It's what, it's what they're doing. Their hearts are filled with adoration. And one more element, by the way, often found in the Bible's explanation of worship. I've mentioned it. It's trembling. Again, it's not trembling in fear because they may be killed if they are displeased or displeasing this child. It's trembling because this person, this divine toddler, the one to whom they were made for, they're, they're trembling from excitement, I think. The text may not say it, but this is all part of worship. It, they're full of pleasure. By the way, that's literally the Greek definition of the word worship. It does mean to tremble. And that excitement, that pleasure, the singular greatest experience that they could ever hope for, they're living it in this moment in verse 11. But here is the second thing that we simply and almost always miss. Look at the order of verse 11. Have you ever noticed this? They fell down and worshipped him, period. I don't know why we erase the period. We make this all of one thing. Period. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. See, most of us tend to make this all part of one thing called worship, when in reality, the latter flows from the former. One part flows from the other, kind of like branches that sprout from the trunk of the heart of the worshiper. Here it is, they worshiped Christ, and then they opened treasures, and they offered them. See, worship must precede offering. You've got to get off the throne. You've got to be filled with adoration. Your heart must be trembling with anticipation, with excitement. There ought to be truth and passion. This is what I was built for. This is what I'm designed for, to be at the base of the throne, worshiping the one on the throne. This is all of what my life is meant to be. And then opening treasures and offering, offering gifts. You see, listen, there's a danger. I'm victim of it. I'm perpetrator of it. If worship does not precede offering, then your offering will usually be a distorted, selfish, joyless duty. And we've all experienced this. So many of you just a few minutes ago gave some money during the offertory. But did your giving truly spring from your adoration and your affection for Jesus Christ. If we're really truly honest, there's probably a lot of us are going to say, no, I just gave, that's what I do. 
Well, God would love for you to be obedient and to give because that's what you ought to do. But he wants it to be done from a heart that's springing forth a love for Christ so big that you realize he owns everything. And this money, these gifts, they're just, they don't buy his love. They don't manipulate him. They won't give you a good week. All they do is this is a response. This is a, a response to what God has given to us. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, Paul teaches the the Christians at Corinth. He's teaching them, here's how you have generosity in your heart. Look at God's gift to you and your response of giving to to the poor, being generous. That's just a response to God's gift to you. See, the grace of God precedes every act of true goodness. It empowers us to godly to godly giving. Now, I'm going to tell you, I've been in a lot of churches. I hope I never preach a moralistic sermon. I'm sure I have. I hope I don't. I hope you call me out if I do. If I just tell you what you ought to do, and I don't give you the power to do that, or I don't help you see how you can have the power to do it, I don't show you the grace of God that is at work helping you to live obediently, all I've done is taken a 20-ton weight of moralistic teaching and plopped it on your shoulders. You're going to walk out of here, some of you, redouble your efforts to obey and spectacularly fail. And one more little chink in your confidence in God, how can I possibly ever please him? I'll tell you how you please God. You put your faith in Jesus because Jesus did all the pleasing. And you let your worship respond in adoration-filled devotion. See, the grace of God must precede all of our lives and all of our acts of goodness. The Apostle John said we love, we love each other. Why? Because he first loved us. We cannot love to the degree that we ought if we do not yet receive Christ's love. His love must be poured into our hearts, Romans 5, 5. And then it spills over to one another. See, this is worship. It's a life lived to meet the needs of others as if there is no more natural way to live. These wise men worshiped Christ. And the result was their offering. It was the expression of their love and their devotion to him. And so they opened up treasures. You know what that word is, by the way? It's a word for caskets. Same word for when they buried people. But these were smaller coffins. They carried with them. They put precious things in them. All they are are boxes. So they opened up their boxes. And opening up their caskets, their boxes, their treasures, they offered Jesus gifts. Not to buy his love, but to express their love. Not to purchase his favor, but to demonstrate their adoration through sacrificial devotion. We deliberate too much, don't we, on how much we're going to give to God. I'm not even talking about money. I'm talking about, will I serve in that ministry? Will I pick that person up who needs a ride to a doctor? We, we talk about our schedule. We think about what it's going to cost us. The wise men didn't think like that. And true worshipers, yes, you think, you have discernment, but there's an extravagance to what you offer. We help that person, even if it's going to require much. We give to that need, even if it's going to dip into our savings. We serve in that ministry, even if it's going to take time that I don't have a lot of extra. 
You see, worship just does not calculate the cost to ourselves. It responds with devotion. Worship is the giving of yourself before you give what you have. See, you, it, that's really important. That's incredibly profound. Worship is the giving of yourself before you give what you have. We've got that completely backwards. And we wonder why we're so joyless. Why it's so difficult. This is what Paul meant. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You give of yourself first, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then you give what you have. See, worship is occupied with what gift of myself is worthy for my king. Have you ever thought like that? Worship is occupied with what gift of myself is worthy for my king. These wise men gave of themselves. That journey was part of their giving. And then they opened their treasure boxes and they gave gifts. And one box contained gold. That was a gift to the child king. But not just a king for an earthly throne, but for a heavenly throne. In the second box, frankincense, was an offering fit to, the, to a god. This is how you know that the gold is for a king of all kings. A king sitting on a heavenly, gold, or a heavenly throne because a frankincense spoke that he was God. But the myrrh? I mean, was Monty Python right? Don't worry too much about the myrrh next time. How much do you know about myrrh? Well, you know from last week, and you previously may have known, that frankincense was harvested from a tree. Myrrh is as well, but it's not the Basualia trees like frankincense is. These are eight to nine foot thorny trees that grow in Arabia, India primarily. A bottle of myrrh, if you put it in today's currency would be in excess of $11,000. See, all of these were very, very costly gifts. But worship doesn't calculate the cost. Worship gives of yourself before you give of what you have. And if there's any calculation, it's always, is this gift appropriate for my king? Now, you might be thinking, well, he's talking about money. This is just a sermon to get everybody to give more in the offering plate. Really, I'm not talking about money at all. Not in the bigger scope of things. I'm talking about yourself serving God with everything, the very best of what you have, not what's left over at the end of your week. The very best, the most energy that you have. We're talking about that kind of worship that adores Christ, trembles because you know worshiping him is what you're built for. It's what you're designed for. And out of that comes a life of devotion, greater service, laying at the foot of the throne rather than trying to get to the throne itself. Not ruling, but serving. Well, myrrh was used to deodorize clothing. They didn't have Tide. They didn't have powder deodorant. They didn't have washing machines. They deodorized them. With myrrh, blankets and beds and couches, they would deodorize that with myrrh as well. Myrrh was used in anointing oils. It would make it smell very beautiful when they mixed it into the oil. It was mixed with wine you saw on the cross of Christ. It was offered to him and he refused it. 
He was determined to endure the full ravages Christ was of crucifixion, but it was mixed with wine. Why? Because it was like an Advil. It was a mild analgesic, a pain reliever. But another use of myrrh factors most prominently into the gift of the wise men. You recall from the Old Testament, go all the way back to Genesis. You remember Joseph? Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers to a caravan of merchants. And do you remember that they were carrying products that they were going to sell in Egypt? And one of those project products was myrrh. That was a massive, coveted product. A bestseller in Egypt because their belief system was to embalm their dead. And myrrh was used in the embalmment process. The Jewish people didn't embalm the dead the same way. What they did was they first washed the dead body. And then they dressed the corpse in special garments. They packed those strips of linen with myrrh and spices. Why? To stifle the smell of decay. Nicodemus also, John 19, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. (coughs) So why did the wise men offer myrrh? Why was that a devotion that was springing from their worship? Likely unknown by the wise men, yet guided by the Holy Spirit. This was a symbol. The myrrh was a symbol of the suffering and the death of that Christ child. You know, I really don't like paintings of Jesus. We really don't know what he looked like. They're all fabrications of the artist's imagination. So it's not for the depiction of Jesus that I'm going to show you a painting from Holman Hunt. I really actually want you to look more at his mother, who's kneeling at his feet. He painted Jesus, Holman Hunt did, as having come out of his carpenter's workshop, stretching his tired body in the rays of the late afternoon sun. And you can see the surprise and the shock and the posture of Mary, his mother. She's working on her knees, and she looks behind her son, and she sees the shadow that his body cast shadow of a crucified person. See, behind the entire life of Christ, and this is what Hunt was trying to capture, was the reality that he was purposefully moving toward his death. And the gift of myrrh given to the one who was born to die, the greatest demonstration of God's love that you will ever see anywhere, his crucified son. For one will scarcely die, Romans 5, for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's no greater display of the love of God than sending his son to die on that cross for us. And he didn't die for those who had cleaned up their act. Listen, if you're you're here right now and you're not a believer, and somehow you've been... Convinced that you've got to clean up your act before you make that decision to trust in Christ. Listen, you'll never clean up your act. You don't have the power to do that. 
And you don't need to. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. This is the extravagant extent of the love of God. And until a person recognizes that Christ died for him or her, then salvation is out of reach. If you don't realize you need a crucified Savior, then you cannot yet attain or receive salvation. So the symbolic gift of myrrh is the offering of faith by sinners who have confessed that Jesus, the Son of God, suffered and died the death that they should have, that I should have, to atone for my sins and your sins. That's what it means to symbolically offer myrrh in our worship. It means that somebody had to die for us. You know, it had to be pretty hard. Even if it was year after year, it had to be difficult to live in the Old Testament in the Jewish land and to take your bull or your lamb to the temple or the tabernacle to have it sacrificed for you. You know why it must have been so hard? Because the priest would have handed to you a knife. It would have been your hand that slits the neck of that lamb. While the priest held the bowl to collect its blood that would splash against the altar, representing that something had to die for your sin. Something innocent had to die in your place. And all those millions of Old Testament sacrifices, all of them were just a shadow. They were just pointing until the sun came up and the real son of God came. And he became the sacrificial lamb. And he died in our place and our sins nailed the cross, nailed them to the cross. See, until you are arrested by that, until you are sobered by the reality that every one of your sins and every one of my sins were were responsible for putting Christ on that cross, until you're sobered by that, you're not yet broken and at the foot of the throne to reach up a feeble hand and say, please save me. Can I ask you to reflect on something as we're getting ready to close? Have you fallen down before the Son of God in adoration? I know that's a weird question, strange. But has Christ so captured your affections that there's no longer an obstacle between you and Him that you will come to Him? Your pride, your fear, the thoughts of others, they don't matter anymore. Has your adoration produced a life, and is it producing a life where you're giving your very best to Christ? You know, our gifts are feeble, but Jesus so loves them. We have a lot of coffee mugs in our cabinets, given by our children for Christmas, bought at their school stores, and most of them, if not all, not all of them, but a lot of them have broken They're really not quality-wise very good. But you know what? Almost every single morning, if there's a bunch of mugs to choose from, I'm picking a mug that one of my kids gave me every morning because they're given by the ones that I love more than anybody. 
So worship your king, worship your God, worship your savior, and let it bring about a life of faithful service to him. It doesn't matter how feeble your gift is. Your heavenly father is absolutely enamored with it. He loves it. He says, that's exactly what I was hoping you'd give me. It's what I've been wanting. And he really means it. These Gentile believers, how amazing, right? Gentile believers from Parthia, these wise men, traveled 2,000 miles to worship their king, their God, their savior, and they honored him with costly, appropriate, beautiful gifts. You know what? There is no gift better, though, than their lives. That's so outvalued, that gold and that frankincense, that incense and that myrrh. It was their lives that God wants. It's a life of faith to worship Jesus, loving him and offering him the very best you have. Amen? Let's pray.